0: Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simone Fishben, Editor-in-Chief.
1: Lauren Martz, Senior Editor.
2: Steve Osden, Washington Editor.
0: On this week's pod, it's ASH Monday. New targets at ASH hint at an emerging T-cell cancer focus. We'll also talk about Genentech's latest TIGIT data presented at ESMO's Immuno-Oncology Meetup. We'll check in on what's happening at NIH and FDA and the Build Back Better bill with Steve's Washington Roundup. And in our emerging company spotlight, Avastone, a new Chinese biotech that last week raised one of the largest ever Series A rounds. But first, let's head to ASH. A lot of data out today, a lot of stocks moving, but we want to take a look at the targets. Target innovation for hematological malignancies could be shifting away from B-cell lymphomas to T-cell cancers. That's from Biosentry's analysis of new drug targets being presented at ASH-21. The analysis identifies 22 new targets in abstracts released ahead of the meeting. A new target, we defined it as one that hasn't been addressed by any disclosed preclinical, clinical, or approved product listed in our BCIQ database. Lauren, I'm gonna throw it right over to you. Uh, Interesting piece. Tell me about the indications that these targets are focused in.
1: So I don't think it's a surprise that about half of the targets are for multiple myeloma. That's just an indication where innovation is always high. There are so many really interesting therapies that are emerging in that space It's just a cancer type where patients do need to cycle through a bunch of them. And so despite the fact that there's been so much progress with the BCMAs and some other new targets, there are still a lot of interesting things, I think, on the horizon. What I found more interesting when looking at those 22 targets was the fact that four of them were for T-cell cancers, leukemias and lymphomas. That's an area where there hasn't been a ton of development, especially in the immunotherapy New modality space because it's really hard to target a T cell cancer with a T cell therapy or a therapy that's using T cells in some ways. If you're going after a target on T cells, on the T cell cancer, you could actually end up killing the therapeutic cells as well, unless you remove that target from the therapeutic cell. So it's sort of been a lower priority set of indications in the immunotherapy space. There are a couple. Really early stage CAR T cell programs that are trying to do that extra engineering step and take away the target on the therapeutic cells. But there hasn't been a ton of development, and those are pretty early programs. Lauren, so that
3: seems kind of a tricky thing to
1: engineer. What are the handles they're using
3: and mechanisms to avoid that T cell problem?
1: So, with some of the new targets, these might actually be expressed selectively on the T cell cancers and not the healthy T-cells. There have been a couple other targets that were identified that can do that, but they're just expressed on a small subset of T-cell cancers. One target that Audalus seems to be thinking about going after based on an abstract that they published is highly expressed on a large percentage of T-cell cancers, but not healthy T-cells. Instead, it's found on healthy B-cells. And we already know that if you knock out the healthy B-cells, that's okay, they come back. And you're not going to kill your therapeutic product.
3: So what's your impression, Lauren? I mean, I know ASH has become an incredibly important meeting in the last, well, several years, actually, on the cancer spectrum. Are people getting to second and third generation innovation? Obviously, at the beginning, it was, can you do this with CAR-Ts and you know, various other ways? You've talked about multiple myeloma. Do you think that people are sort of scratching around the edges or is this really a new whole wave of... Targets and mechanisms people are going after?
1: I do think that this is a place where we'll continue to see innovation and I think we'll continue to see improvement. For so long, this conference has been so focused on the DLBCL, you know, the very common B cell lymphomas, and it still is. There's a ton of data this year that really advances therapies for that indication, and that's where the late stage data are now. Looking at the targets, that gives us an indication of where things are headed no one will know what happens with these particular targets and these particular programs. But I think it's a good indication that there's a dedicated focus on finding new targets, new mechanisms that apply to the cancers that don't have that many potential mechanisms and therapeutic options right now.
0: All right. Well, Lauren, definitely Doug checking out that story, which we posted late last week. It's up on biocentry.com. But Ash is not the only rodeo in town. ESMO has its I.O. meeting and we saw some new TIGIT data out of Genentech. What did we learn?
1: We learned that the results that we saw about a year and a half ago that put TIGIT on the map as a next generation checkpoint target to watch are holding up. So Genentech... Presented updated data from that same trial that we saw from ASCO last year on its anti-tigit antibody tiragolumab, showing that this created a more than additive effect when combined with tecentric in first-line non-small cell lung cancer patients. It's really huge because this is the first time that a next-generation checkpoint inhibitor has been shown to do that. This is the full data set from that trial. And specifically, this was in patients who express high levels of PDL1. It does raise questions about how broadly this therapy will end up being used, what the market will actually be, whether this will work across solid tumors that have high PDL1 expression, whether it can extend to tumors without high PDL1. I, I don't think they're trying to develop this as the next K It's something that seems to have a really interesting additive effect to help improve the effect of PDL ones and, and PD-1s?
3: I think it's kind of also important because there are still a lot of people who are sitting on the fence, if not the sidelines, saying, well, we had CTLA-4 and we had PD-1, but there's still no real follow-on checkpoint target that's really proved itself. Everything so far is obviously in the clinic. So it'd be really nice to see the next versions or the next generations really break through and make that difference.
1: Yeah. And this is one of two. So um, BMS has relatlimab, an anti-LAG3 antibody, which is up for approval in a couple months. And that one's for melanoma. And in both of these cases, it's looking to improve upon the first-generation checkpoint inhibitor effects. So we'll see how they fit onto the market.
0: All right. Let's turn to Washington. We have Francis Collins walking out the door and Rob Califf trying to get in the door.
2: Steve, over to you. Yeah, Rob Caleb. the confirmation hearing in the Senate Health Committee is tomorrow, Tuesday. I think there's going to be some tough questions there. He's got a few critics on the Democratic side on the committee. They're going to focus on his ties to industry. They're probably going to talk about opioids. And there'll be some parochial issues. Senator Murkowski on the Republican side always brings up fish genetically modified fish or nomenclature for Alaskan pollock or something like that. So you can expect um, something fishy from her. My prediction is, in the end, I think that Calif is going to be confirmed. There's enough support from Republicans to offset the opposition from a handful of Democrats. The real question is how long it's going to take. The White House kind of fumbled in sending the paperwork to the Hill. That delayed this hearing. Hopefully, it won't delay a final vote much longer, but it's certainly going to slip until January, and it could be even as late as February. You know, on the one hand, I think a lot of people feel confident that Janet Woodcock as acting commissioner means that the agency is in good hands. On the other hand, it's really good to have a confirmed commissioner who has the political support from the Senate in office.
0: All right. And uh, who's taking over for Dr. Collins?
2: So on an acting basis, Larry Tabak, who's a longtime senior FDA leader, and then the names for who's going to get the nod as a permanent NIH director, not much has leaked out about that yet. I think that's something else that we're going to hear about in the new year. Obviously, it's really important. We're looking at an agency that's got a a great deal of responsibilities for developing countermeasures for COVID-19 and has a, something like a $60 billion a year budget for biomedical research. It's probably the most important position in all of science.
0: Yeah, and Francis Collins set a very, very high bar. Obviously, he was there for
2: years and years. He was, please- he was there for about 12 years. Mm. I think the other thing that's hanging now that's going to depend a lot on the new NIH director is the future of ARPA-H. So mm-hmm. that's the Biden administration's proposal to create a DARPA for health. The House and the Senate have indicated that they're willing to fund it, but the funding bill hasn't gone through because that whole process is sclerotic as usual, but it hasn't been authorized. It have to, have, to have money appropriated, but there also has to be an authorization process to create whatever structure there is going to be for arpa and there's still a debate the Biden administration, Eric Lander in the White House, Francis Collins, and others at NIH want to have it placed at NIH. There are others who say that that would really ensure that it won't be able to meet the aspirations that people have for arpa and they want it to be created at a separate agency. Two former NIH directors, Elias Serhoni and Harold Varmus, had a commentary in Nature last week that was quite interesting, where they proposed creating a new agency dedicated to translational research and including ARPA-H in that. It's a heavy lift for something like that to happen, but I think it's it's interesting that the discussion is happening. It's something I personally think would be a, an excellent idea, and it's something that goes beyond ARPA-H and really would be intended to supercharge translational research in the United States. You could argue that the United States has really never had a government-funded translational research capability that matches the needs.
3: Yeah, I think it's really relevant that these two sort of heavyweight former NIH directors wrote this piece. Uh, Zahuni was actually, I think, the NIH director who was probably the biggest champion or earliest, maybe not biggest, earliest champion of translational research. And of course, uh, was it NCATS under him, Steve? No,
2: no, not that was created under, under Francis Collins. But, but certainly, Zahuni was the person who started the ball rolling in trying to bring NIH activities further upstream and to get academic researchers thinking and working on translational activities.
3: and I think it's really really important that they recognize there are some things academic researchers and NIH does really well, and the whole ecosystem and need has grown, and there is actually a gap that needs to be filled, and there's a place for a government-funded institution is what they're saying to fill that gap.
0: And let it be said that Francis Collins plays a mean guitar. Steve, there's an update to Build Back Better. What's in it?
2: So most of the things, this is the Senate Finance Committee has released its version of the Build Back Better bill. Most of the things that were in the House version are in this version. There are a few changes. For high-priced single-source drugs that are going to be subject to price regulation, The version that the Senate Finance Committee released over the weekend excludes plasma-derived products. The other changes that are important, they're trying to prohibit double-dipping by hospitals on the 340B discount program. That's something that drug companies have complained about for some time and could be consequential if it's included in the final bill. And there's some relief for generics companies and biosimilars companies from the inflation cap on price increases. So multi-source generics are exempted from inflation penalties. Generics and biosimilars are exempted from it if there's a severe supply chain disruption. And there's also an exception for single source generics. What the bill doesn't address is the bigger concerns that generics and biosimilars companies have that regulating the prices of older drugs just before they're about to go generic or just before they're about to have biosimilar competition cuts the legs out from under generics companies and biosimilars companies. I think it's an interesting public policy debate, which as far as I know, hasn't been conducted, at least not in public, to determine whether it's better to have generic competition or biosimilar competition knock those prices down or better, to attack them the way that the Build Back Better bill does with price regulation. In any case, that's remained in the bill. What's going to happen next, and it's going to happen this week, is a so-called birdbath when the Senate parliamentarian is going to determine which provisions in the bill meet the test of the so-called bird rule for budget reconciliation, which states that only provisions that have a direct impact on the budget can make it through. For the drug pricing provisions, the thing that's going to be the most important to watch for will be whether the inflation caps on price increases are extended beyond the Medicare markets to the private sector. There are a lot of people who are arguing that that won't be able to pass the bird rule and that those will be withdrawn. There are others that argue that it will pass the test because the consequences the companies have to pay for raising prices over the inflation rate result in added revenue for the federal government. We'll know the answer to that by, um, by the end of the week, I think.
0: Excellent. Thanks for that, Steve. And of course, Steve will be following all of this all week long <laughs> and into the new year, I hope, uh, on biosentry.com. Let's turn to our emerging company spotlight. A near decade-long journey for a Beijing-based entrepreneur has led to one of the largest ever Series A rounds for a China biotech, or really any biotech. Blue Chip Investors, Vivo Capital, Bain Capital Life Sciences, and Primavera invested $200 to create a new company from a pair of startups led by the same man, Dr. He-Ping-Shu. Let's see. The deal brings these two companies together. One has an in-licensed asset, an old Crown Bio asset, which is a cMET inhibitor. It's in late stage testing for non-small cell lung cancer and glioblastoma. And they're shooting for a regulatory submission in China next year. And the company also has an undisclosed lung cancer asset in the clinic. The round, according to BCIQ, is the second largest Series A round by a cancer-focused China Biotech. It's topped only by a 2018 financing by Genor Biopharma, which now trades on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. And Ricky Sun, who is a manager at Bain Capital, and Hongbo Lu of Vivo Capital, both believe the lead asset could be best in class, going up against a therapy from HutchMed, but it was really the discovery capabilities that attracted them to this deal and inspired them to put in so much money. This story is up on our website. It's one of four emerging company profiles we ran last week. Coming up on Biocentury, uh, our colleague Paul Bonanos will have his take on Pfizer's $6.7 billion takeout of ARENA at a 100% premium. ARENA, of course, is one of these quintessential biotechs. They've been around since the late 1990s. Stock once traded sky high around the genomic bubble. They've been knocked to the mat quite a few times and reinvented themselves. They were once an obesity company, as probably most of you remember. We'll also have our colleague Karen Catch tusmans look at digital in biopharma companies. And we'll have our usual slate of emerging company profiles and more. All of our podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. This Sunday, December 19th, Kendall Square Orchestra presents its holiday harmonies at Cambridge side from three to four. It's free classical and holiday favorites, including a sweet from the Nutcracker, Love Actually, and Sleigh Ride. So if you're in Boston, Uh, you know what to do. That's all for this week, folks. And we'll catch you next week.